We fit the fittest minds with the chip inside I can link and digitize that Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything erased, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, a recording of a panel at the last body hacking convention this past January. And we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and also as a special reminder, because that same team behind Body Hacks also puts on an information security conference called InfoSec. Southwest. Now this year it'll be occurring very soon April 7th through 9th in Austin, Texas. For more information and tickets please go to InfoSecSouthwest.com. Now we look forward to seeing you there at the great talks and panels, Expo Floor, the Lockpick Village as well as Capture the Flag competition. But also the scavenger hunt which has led to many lasting memory and yes tattoos. But so again check them out because this team sure knows how to put on not only a good party but also a good convention. And that is definitely InfoSecSouthwest.com. Take a look, get some tickets. It's coming soon, and we hope to see you there. But before we share this, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers cushion gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. I'm very happy to be bringing out Richard Thiem, an author and commenter on the challenges posed by new technologies. Uh, he's spoken for the NSA, the FBI, the Department of Treasury, um, government agencies, tech conferences. Uh, he's a writer at Wired, Forbes, and Salon. Uh, originally, uh, he started out as an Episcopal priest, um, and one of the things I love about Richard Thiem's range is that he always brings in a, 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 a perspective that you're not expecting. Um, and, and his data checks out, and that's a wonderful combination uh, from, a, from a commenter. Um, and uh, in this talk, we'll be, t uh, we'll be hearing about the um, ethics of hacking, bio biotech, biohacking, and the freedom to live or die. Um, not every country or person um, who talks the talk walks the walk. Different rules apply inside the national security apparatus than they do to humplings, those who hump along about the body of the bell curve. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what Richard has to say about those contradictions and the ethics of the kind of biohacking we're talking about this weekend. A big warm welcome for Richard Thiem. Thank you, Quinn. Is that loud enough? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, it's great to be here, and it's great to be part of it. Did I do that? We got it down? Okay, it's great to be part of a conference that offers such a diverse set of uh, offerings because there's nobody interested in these subjects who could not find 
uh, plenty to engage with here. I think, I think it's been wonderful. Uh, I am going to talk a little bit about some of the things that can happen that make ethical issues uh, relevant in the first place. I'm going to start with that. I mean, the first, I guess, is, is my example here. You can see I'm wearing a brace on my wrist, and this is testimony to some of the dangers of an uninformed approach to certain technologies that have become embedded in our lives uh, if you simply use them without thinking. Um, how many people have seen Breaking Bad? Uh, most, most of you. Uh, Breaking Bad is terrific, right? Uh, and when we watched it the first time, we were just enthralled and pretty much binge-watched it. And then after many months had passed, I wondered how it would go to look at it again. And I start watching it on my iPad, and I got caught up in it again and watched two or three at a time before I went to sleep, which I know now you're not supposed to do. And I didn't even think about the fact that I was holding my iPad like this for two to three hours. Uh, so the lesson I learned from that is rest it on a pillow. Uh, do not hold it up like this for a prolonged period of time. So uh, unintentionally, the technologies can, can come into our lives. Uh, not every country, not every person uh, talks the ethical talk we hear in this country. Uh, it is a two-edged sword. It both keeps us on the path we want to say we are on, but it also puts us, puts us at a competitive disadvantage. And people that I talk to in the intelligence community are very, very concerned about that. Uh, they know that other people are doing everything they can to advance the technologies in nefarious ways. Uh, and so we have to talk about what ethics really means in the world in relationship to these topics. Um, really, ethics is just thinking about together what's the best thing to do, what's the right thing to do, uh, and what's the fun thing to do, and how is it that we can go off the tracks. Uh, some people think of ethics in a rigid black and white rule-based way. I'll say a lot about that in a, little, a little later for a good reason. That's where beginners do begin thinking about how to live their lives with a set of rules that they're given like we were in kindergarten. Uh, but that's not where real experts at ethics live their lives and it's not where uh, I hope you will live your life. I'm going to try to provide a program or a way, a framework to understand how you can become expert at ethical decisions. In other words, I'm not going to give you a set of rules. I'm going to give you a template for an ongoing uh, modification and sustaining and nurturing of your own journey so that you become expert intuitively at knowing what is the right thing to do. Because that's what it's all about, to wind up at the ability to know how and know that you know how to make the right decisions in life. We call it maturity. Uh, and if we don't do it, we can go off. Uh, this is a Mobius strip. This is an object which you know it looks like it has two sides, but it only has one side. And that is the challenge that faces us in all of the discussions we've heard for these two days here. We are these agents exercising what we used to call free agency for thinking about and implementing all of these ideas about how to change ourselves into the future. But when we come back to the decision-making process, we find that the very thing we are altering is the very self that is making those decisions. In other words, there's only one side to this. We set out as if we are separate from our bodies, which is, of course, not true. Our body-brain is a single organic unity. 
We are one thing. And we have what some call the illusion of freedom of action because we know that unconscious processes generate action prior to the conscious mind becoming aware that it's making what we used to call a choice. And this makes the discussion of ethics very, very difficult, and it makes a lot of the statements we make paradoxical. I did a speech in Canada two weeks ago for the uh, 17th Annual Privacy and Security Conference for primarily the government and some corporation, and I made the statement that the weakest link in discussions of privacy is the definition of privacy. Uh, and the definition of privacy is no longer what we think it is. And the reason it's no longer what we think it is is because the very self, the individual human being, who was contextualized by prior technologies, is no longer the self that we are, and certainly not the self that we have discussed enhancing, augmenting, and transforming into a different kind of human species, or at least variety, in the future. And therefore, this is very paradoxical and very tricky to talk about because literally the language we want to use for ethics, which uh, came from originally our religious narratives, um, has to be reformulated in light of who we really are and what we are really able to do and are doing now. And if we don't do that, we're using 20th century language or 19th century language or in some cases 16th century language or Stone Age or Bronze Age language to try to describe what is no longer uh, really appropriate for us. So we, we can do a lot of things, but we should really think seriously about what it is we want to do. Uh, here you're looking at uh, an RFID implant, and uh, you heard Emal. Emal can uh, open doors, uh, leap tall buildings, a single bound, do all sorts of things with the RFID chips that are in his hands. Uh, he was on the panel in, in Canada as well, but somebody else on the panel, a PhD student at University of Victoria, questioned whether or not there's this a, a, a overriding purpose for implanting the RFID implants at this point. Uh, that comes out of uh, the quantified self movement, as does, I don't have a picture of it, but uh, Buttermind uh, self, Seth Roberts. You, you may know about him. Uh, he thought lipids, uh, excessive amounts of lipids, were key to an agile mind. And he's called Buttermind because he ate half a stick of butter for breakfast every day. Uh, he died of a heart attack. Uh, it might have been from eating all those lipids. It might have been from a congenital defect of his heart. I don't know, and I don't know any of the autopsy results. But the point is it points to personal risk. You had better not trust the paternalistic medical system exclusively, but you had better learn to trust your own better judgment when you're evaluating these things. It is completely your right to do whatever you choose to do with your body, but you are responsible for what you do with your body and the sometimes unintended consequences. So accepting rights means accepting responsibility for making those choices. Uh, somebody else is uh, giving themselves infusions of vitamin A2 as opposed to vitamin A1 because they want to develop uh, an ability to see infrared and they believe that that's a factor that will enhance it. Uh, my understanding based on simply testimony to that is that it may be making some of a difference, something of a difference in that way already, but what is it doing to someone's vision to play with one's eyes? Um, will it hurt? Will it degrade 
the ability to see going forward. Uh, we, we don't know. Long-term studies are needed in order to know what we don't know. So whether it's an RFID implant or eating a stick of butter every day for breakfast or giving yourself vitamin A2, uh, we just don't know where it's going to lead. Uh, on the other hand, there are things that seem relatively benign. This is Northpaw. Uh, many of you are familiar with that. Uh, Northpaw, uh, sensebridge.net project slash Northpaw is where you learn more about it. It's uh, magnets and a buzzer. And it comes from the studies done by people at the University of Wisconsin uh, a number of years ago uh, called the, the uh, feel, sense, feel Sense Belt, where magnets were implanted and then directly connected to neuronal system that hijacked the pathways developed by our evolution in the brain for something else to take the detection of the Earth's magnetic field directly into the brain. And the person who volunteered for that experiment developed for six months uh, a very acute ability to know always where True North was. Uh, it seemed astonishing at the time to emulate what pigeons and the like could do, but now Northpaw makes this available and there are other kinds of things you can wear to detect the Earth's magnetic field and the buzzers enable you to learn over time by training your brain uh, what it is that you're picking up. And I want to just say something about that briefly because you cannot overemphasize the degree of cooperation you have to give to your brain almost as if it is a partner in this. Uh, you know, in light of colorblindness, uh, that many women, about 20%, have an additional chromosome which enhances their ability to see more colors than normals um, can see. But one woman in particular, when she discovered that she had this ability and told people about it, was told she was imagining it and it couldn't be true. What happens when people tell us that, even when it's innately available to us by genetics, people stop believing that they have the capacity, just as the only way you can really take personal power away from someone is convince them they don't have it, so they don't exercise it. That's what abuse is and does. But intrinsic to the human condition is freedom to act and the power to act. And if intrinsic to your genetic code is the ability to see more colors than anyone else can see, and you know it and believe it and then cooperate with what you have been given to develop it, then you enhance by virtue of your choice and freedom and own intentionality your ability to see those colors more and more clearly and more and more distinctly and to use what now is a gift rather than an imaginative uh, something you, you made up. So it's important to know that when you do put these things, whatever they may be, whether genetically or enhancements, onto or into yourself, that if your brain can pick it up, you have an obligation based on your prefrontal cortex, which is your executive function, to work with that part of the brain that is doing it so that you will enhance your ability to continue to do it. So Northpaw is a good thing if you want to know where the magnetic field is. fMRIs have been used for neurofeedback for chronic pain patients, and they learn they can train themselves not to need opiates anymore using that feedback mechanism. And OpenBCI, which we've had great presentations on here at the conference, electroencephalography, neurofeedback, uh, can allow you to control or enable alpha wave meditation states uh, much more easily, and that's a safe way to use it. But you can also use that feedback loop to reward thought patterns which are nefarious or negative 
for yourself and can have serious psychological impacts. So the same thing can be used positively or negatively. Um, the location that you stimulate in the brain when you're using things like transcranial direct stimulation, TDCS, uh, using just some circuitry and saline-soaked pads and a battery, it's all it takes. Uh, some people found they had to withdraw from the use of that technology as they did from a drug. And the location to stimulate is critical, but we don't know yet what we are stimulating. We are stimulating something in the brain, but we don't really know what. So the risk can be said as it's easy to fool yourself as a human and believe what we want to believe, but these issues are much more complex than we thought. Now, different places allow us to do different things. Uh, Neuromancer style, you can go to Chiba City near Tokyo and get McCoy Pauly, also, aka the flat line, inserted in your head in a chip. Um, but before you do that, you have to find out what's legal. And if what you are doing is not legal, then you have to wait the consequences of trying something that results in something negative. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, synthetic biology has obvious risks and benefits. And different cultures recognize that differently. In Europe, you need a transformation license to do even simple risk-free lab experiments. In North America, the regulations are much more permissive. Uh, so there's a societal advantage in advancing the state of education and allowing informed discussions about genetic engineering. Uh, the previous speaker did not want to get into politics, and especially religious politics, but I'm going to go back to a great scientist hundreds of years ago who, when the church told him he shouldn't dissect cadavers, which he wanted to do in order to discover human anatomy, in order to do medicine, uh, he said anything that deserves to exist deserves to be known. And the same is true, of course, of stem cell research and all the other things that rigid, uh, frightened, uh, rigidly righteous people uh, try on behalf of what they believe is the general good to uh, keep all of us from doing uh, for the benefit of all of us. I don't think it's much of a limb to go out and say that rigidly righteous people I learned in the ministry are the worst problem for ministers and clergy because they present a schema that's inviolable, that's absolute, that's totalitarian, out of their fear based need to control. So, uh, different cultures will manifest that different ways politically. Um, and then there's what other cultures do with this data. Beijing uh, is doing human genetic enhancement. Uh, we've got two problems with that. One is they're doing things that we would never allow to be done here. Never. On the other hand, they lie a lot. So we don't know exactly what's real. They claim that the Beijing Genomics Institute is learning about the genetics of intelligence. And when we say Geno Genomics Institute, think whole cities dedicated to that task and consisting of nothing but people who are doing that task. So they claim that within five years they'll be able to engineer babies with an IQ of 300. Uh, they say there are about 100 different genetic factors they've been able to recognize. And by doing genetic engineering appropriately, we can enhance um, IQs up to 300, some claim 400, 450. Um, in North America, we have a moratorium proposed on germline modifications. So will our unenhanced humans here, the next generation, 
uh, remain competitive if the Chinese, in fact, do that. My best sources in the intelligence community tell me they will not achieve that, that they may very well, within maybe 10 years, be able to enhance intelligence by genetic engineering, but they will also develop, and I won't go into the details, but they will also develop cancers that will mean they were dead on the table by the time they are uh, in late adolescence. So uh, think of Roy, uh, the replicant, asking Terrell in Blade Runner uh, for the changes he wanted made to his genetic structure so that he could have more life. And he said, gives rise to recomb the recombinant DNA gives rise to a mutation, the patient is dead before they can get off the table. It's like that. Uh, if you are in a culture and a political context that is willing to sacrifice individuals in order to find out how to do that best, and who discards the byproducts of failed experiments, you will learn faster, but at a cost that in our culture we don't believe is an acceptable cost. So they say these hundred genes most relevant, um, if they all point in the right direction, will lead to another generation of Chinese three times smarter than us. Uh, they don't have any moratorium on that research, but they also have to wait a generation to see if it's true. Intelligence is a very difficult thing. We use the word as if we all share an understanding of what that means, but it means many different things. And again, my resources tell me that a hundred is probably light in terms of all of the factors in the brain and in the genome that affect it. So you want to do your homework when you hear these claims. You want to do your homework when advertising and marketing presents products and processes that claim to do astonishing things simply. If it seems too good to be true, this is an old man speaking, it usually is. Uh, now this is a gentleman we heard yesterday, Ariel, um, who injected chlorophyll eye drops in an attempt to enhance his night vision, to enhance his ability to see, in effect, in infrared. Uh, that's how he looks with uh, chlorophyll-enhanced eyes, pretty green. Uh, the question it raises is, what else are you doing to your eyes? Uh, above all, do you know what you are doing to your eyes? So there are things we can experiment with, but we don't know what the results are going to be. Uh, here are, uh, here's a slide showing you two monkeys. Uh, that are going to undergo a head transplant. Uh, we are doing, that is we humans, are now doing in some places uh, head transplants. You take the head of one monkey and you put it on the other. A doctor in Italy claimed that within two years he'll be able to do this for human beings. I think it raises some, some questions for us. Um, there is a mouse ready to undergo a head transplant. He's obviously been sedated. No animals were hurt during the process of this operation, except, of course, the mouse from who the head uh, was donated, and that's what he looked like afterward. You see a white mouse with the head of a black mouse. Now, here's something amazing. Using the equivalent of fMRI and senses, sensory data, they were able to determine when the mouse woke up from the transplant what thought if you can call it a thought in a mouse brain, he was actually thinking, say he, because it was a male mouse. And they were able to codify that uh, like this. That's what the mouse uh, was thinking. So, you know, this stuff is really pretty exciting. Uh, when you talk about head transplants, this is the way it looked in a science fiction movie, and you can see that this lovely woman is not 
minding at all that her head is about to be removed and replaced with another, or maybe she's the donor, I don't remember the movie that well, who sees these Ed Wood movies anymore. Um, but she's happy. Uh, but I need to show you what it really looks like when you wake up from a head transplant. It's kind of like that. So that's how it can really feel. That's, that's too bad to leave on the screen. No, supposed to go back. No, those are supposed to go back. There we go. There, I'll stay with a pleasant image rather than an unpleasant one for a minute while I continue. So the uh, promise is great, right? Cybernetics um, from direction sensing to perfect pitch to memory using cloud-based memory to enhance our own to distributed cognition that promises to enhance us all. Elon Musk, who takes a lot of risks, donated 10 million to the Future of Life Institute to ensure that AI is developed that doesn't threaten humanity. But we don't know the dividing line between the artificial and simply enhanced remain clear. I will add that my sources uh, at, at CIA is, is the gentleman I talked to and somebody at NSA about this, uh, said that they think long, long before we enhance intelligence successfully by genetic modification, uh, AI will have done the enhancement for us, that the machines are going to be moving a lot, lot faster, and we are cyborgian in our relationship to the machines. So what does it matter whether you're enhanced or a cyborg or, quote, artificial? These are all differently sentient creatures. I like that term, differently sentient creatures. And the distinctions will blur, the legal issues will ask for clarity, and we never get it, uh, not for a long, long time, if, if ever. Way back in the Clinton administration, I was asked to speak to the senior lawyers at the Department of the Treasury on what the Internet and various technologies related to it were going to do uh, to the distinctions they like to make. And uh, in effect, I addressed the fact that the precedents on which they relied were no, no longer relevant. Uh, laws, like ethics, always come later. We discover what we can do, somebody somewhere does it, then the ethical conversation takes place. And by that time, the horse is uh, usually out of the barn. The privacy conference, you could say, I could say quite clearly and sincerely, uh, the level of abstraction of data at which you are able to look meaningfully determines what you think is real. And that's why we have this kind of silly term, metadata, which is data. But it's not data as presented by studies or sensors. It is data extracted by mining and patterns searching at a higher level of abstraction that will not resemble the results of the data at the lower level. And if people don't see that level of abstraction clearly right in front of them, uh, they literally see a different level of reality than other people see. And they, so they use the word data and metadata, but it's, it's all data. Uh, and as this emerges, uh, what we call metadata is now producing identifiable clusters of attributes of us that mean we are much more better known by others than we know ourselves because they can see and anticipate our behaviors based on prior patterns. And I won't go into all the details. That's a wonderful exploratory talk because uh, it's not science fiction. Uh, it is something we are living, and the secret to its success is to keep it hidden behind the veil so when you click like, etc., etc., as you know, uh, it enables you to be known. So one of the other places this is going is organic computing. You're looking at four, uh, four rats there, uh, and you're looking at some of the data uh, and results based on what they're uh, 
extrapolating, but what we've got is four rats whose brains are all connected to each other. We call this an organic computer. It's like parallel processing, but it's using brains. And just as the brains of a human and the brains of a computer are in a cyborgian relationship or symbiotic relationship that enables a human or a monkey at a monitor in Austin to press a button and a monkey or a human in Tokyo will lift its arm as an unconscious response to the generation of that circuit. Uh, it, the distinctions need to be made more clear, just as the distinctions between artificial and natural uh, no longer hold. Um, they, they just don't. So, where do we begin with ethics? Uh, this is the part of the presentation that is saying, this is what's going on. Now I want to say, I'm supposed to talk about ethics. Well, what is ethics? Uh, Albert Schweitzer famously said once, ethics is reverence for life. Reverence for life. How does that manifest in a hacking context? For hackers, reverence, reverence itself is expressed by engaging with life in an exploratory, playful, and creative way. Creativity often bypasses, for the moment at least, the uh, prefrontal cortex, which says, wait a minute, stop, don't do that. Uh, now, creativity finds ways to spontaneously manifest from other parts of the brain. Uh, and hackers want to make something new out of something else. They want to redesign or reconfigure a new something, which is not inherent in that something else, which was built by an engineer or someone for a different purpose. Well, computer hacking takes an information machine and makes it do things the creator may never have intended. You all know that story by now. But biohacking takes something that's already a kludge, something that evolution itself has enabled to come into being. And how does evolution work? Evolution is not purposeful in the way that we like to think. It uses the parts that are available, and that's one of the reasons uh, our bodies have become, using available materials and parts already evolved, um, what they are. And some of that has problems. Uh, because we walk upright this way and lost our arboreal origins, uh, we have back problems. Because our lower backs were not made to support what, what we do with them. And we can go on and on about the clutches of evolution that had enough upsides, walking upright, binocular vision, seeing animals at a distance on a savanna, etc., uh, to counteract the downsides of, oh, my back, oh, my aching back. So that's the way evolution works. Uh, think of the scene in Apollo 13. Remember when they were stuck trying to come back, and the oxygen level in the cabin was going down? And at NASA, they took all of the available parts that were available on the Apollo 13 module, and they dumped it onto the table, and all these pieces came out, and he said, this is what they've got, this is what we've got to work with. We have to make a kludge using the available parts and pieces to scrub the atmosphere so that the oxygen level goes up so they won't all die in a tin can headed home. And they did. Well, that's the way evolution works as well. It dumps the parts on a table, it looks at them, and it says, well, this might not be perfectly designed for doing X or Y, but maybe it can do it. That's how evolution works and the available result at the moment and in transition is us. We are very provincial and we think that who we have become and who we are is what will stay ourselves for some time. Uh, but already the water is rising, the waters of transformation, and we are already on our way to becoming something else 
The gene pool of humanity already contains billions of mutations, some of which will manifest in perhaps uh, X-Men. And I'll say on the side, I said long ago, science fiction is how a left brain or engineering society dreams of the future. Uh, and I often wondered, well, who are the X-Men? Why are they so prominent in consciousness now? Why are their movies so popular? And it's because mutants with superpowers are exactly what this conference is about. And it raises some of the social issues associated with those emergent properties as well. So evolution cuts corners all the time. It tries new things all the time. It's a roulette wheel, and you never know where the, wheel is, the ball is going to drop. It keeps things that more or less work, and what doesn't work dies, and it gets rid of it because it's slower, or it's dumber, or it gets eaten, and therefore it's out of the gene pool. Uh, one of the problems we have, the political system uh, is manifesting this currently. I'm not choosing sides. I'm, I'm simply saying that obviously a lot of people have remained in the gene pool due to advances in technology that long ago would have been selected out and discarded. And, and they vote. Right? Uh, but the corollary to that is uh, if voting mattered, you know, they wouldn't let us do it. So there's that too then on top of it. But that's an editorial aside. Let me continue. In other words, evolution is a hacker. Now, if you want to call it God, I don't require you to use the language which once was familiar to me in my context as a religious person institutionally. I don't care what language you use. Just know that there is an overarching process underway and Evolution is a hacker, and if you want to call the source of intelligence behind it God, then you have to admit that the way God seems to work things out is like a hacker. In other words, making a lot of stuff up, recreating and recombining possible forms all the time, some of which seem to last like dinosaurs for millions of years before the Earth decides it can handle their exclusion in order to make way for the little lemurs that became us, the little mammals that needed the dinosaurs to get out of the way. That doesn't mean they got out of the way so we could advance. It means they got out of the way and we replaced them and took the niche. So that's a way of saying quite seriously that reverence for life does not mean bowing down before it. It means engaging with it the way God or evolution engages with the universe through trial and error, keeping what works, throwing away what doesn't, sowing lots and lots of seeds, what grows, nurture, and prune, what doesn't plow under. That's reality. So, ethics is always opposed to self-interest. Why? Because ethics is about the other. Ethics isn't not only what doing for yourself is good, what is good for yourself, but what is good for the other. But like that Mobius strip suggested, the self and the other in this case, are the same. Because the other you are trying to design, enhance, or augment is the future self that will no longer be the self that is making the decisions here and now on the basis of imperfect knowledge. And that leads to, I'm going to give you two rules for ethics in the course of this talk. And the first one is, obviously, self-defeating really stupid things are unethical. And as a wise man said, life is very hard, but it's a lot harder if you're stupid. So, the first rule, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. 
Now this has, of course, some prior states of consciousness and awareness that are required. You have to know that you are stupid, and an awful lot of stupid people don't know they're stupid, and therefore they do stupid things. But that means ask somebody. Now that requires a certain degree of humility and awareness to know that you don't know. There are unknown unknowns about what you want to do, as Rumsfeld said. And there are other people always around us who are wiser and smarter than us or more mature. So what we engage with them, in the religious world we call it spiritual direction, we call it therapy, you can call it a spiritual companion, but it means you can't always make these decisions alone, and if you know that you don't know, which is already an advanced condition of awareness, then you engage other people who are smarter than you. What am I describing? You should recognize the hacker meritocracy in this. I remember people staying up all night on the floor of Barnes & Noble, uh, or uh, Borders, which some of you are too young to know, used to be a bookstore. And they would stay up all night with all the O'Reilly books, going over all the details they could, learning, learning, learning. If they were true hackers, when they went online into a, a, a news group then, or a list, you ask questions with humility and deference, showing respect for your elders. And if they got from your question that you had done all the homework you could do prior to coming to them, rather than writing a question that I still get sometimes by email, can you teach me how to hack, uh, which gets you a slap and dismissal, uh, then you get the respect back and the information you need. You have to learn how to be part of a learning group, and that's more important than ever. So, ethics is always gray. There's a difference between what you have a right to do and what it is right to do. If it doesn't feel right to you, rethink it and get advice and counsel from others. But don't just go to others who you know will approve, affirm, or agree with you. Uh, that's like joining a youth, you know, you go on the internet, and I need to find a group that can help me understand the elders, the protocol of the elders of Zion, which is a propaganda piece the Soviets used very effectively in the Middle East to convince a whole Arab world that Jews really did all these despicable things said in that false tract called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So if somebody wants to know about it and goes only to a group online that believes the elders, uh, the pro protocol of the elders of Zion, and then they tell them that, and then you join that group, and you get wraparound 360 degree mutual reinforcement always from that in-group for what it wants to believe, uh, that's not what I mean by joining a group or going to others uh, in order to learn. You, you want diversity of opinion. You want critical thinking. Uh, you want to entertain what might even take the buzz off your excitement for the moment in order to think it through. So you have to become an expert in being ethical and trusting your intuition. Uh, and what kind of expert? An expert at life. You want to become an expert not only in hacking computers, not only in hacker, hacking organics, you want to become an expert in being an expert, in making decisions. Well, how do we do that? Let's see if this takes us. These are the five stages which we move through in any domain of competence as we become an expert. Novice, advanced beginner, competent, proficient, and expert. And they have very identifiable markers, which you can use to understand where you are in any particular process, in any particular domain. Now, when we first developed expert systems, you know what those are. 
We had uh, knowledge engineers, we called them. They were interviewers, trying to extract the wisdom or knowledge from real experts that they could then codify in a system of heuristics, or if this, then that rules, which could then be translated into a computer program. So you could go to the expert system when there was no expert handy and learn, for example, where was it best to, to uh, drill for oil. Or as uh, Robert Buchanan uh, said yesterday, brilliant neuroscientist here at the University of Texas, uh, he, he, uh, he said that when you're doing diagnostics, if you want to be a doctor, please know that a lot of what you do is just following if this, then that rules. Uh, there are a lot of things you can diagnose by simply saying, do you have fever, do you have uh, spots in your head, et cetera, et cetera. And if this, then that, and you follow the tree down and you get an answer. That's what expert systems were meant to do. They took ambiguity into account by weighing conclusions for degrees of probability or likelihood, but those, uh, those weights of probability were also intuitive and not objectively formulated. Uh, we use fuzzy logic, we use neural nets, we do the best we can, but on the basis of success in some domains, like the ones I mentioned, amenable to if-then rules, like mineral exploration or diagnosis, they made claims that you could do the same with every domain of knowledge and reduce them to if-then rules and capture the knowledge of an expert in every program. In fact, they found you couldn't do that. Some domains of knowledge were resistant to if-then rules. Either the knowledge engineers could not clarify a formal body of heuristics, or in their oversimplification, they did not do justice to the complexity and ambiguity of human experience. But more than that, they learned Real experts do not reach their conclusions by following rules. Real experts break the rules all the time. So let's look at how that works. First, a novice. A novice, someone new to the domain, is taught rules that are context-free, and they're told never to break the rules because they don't know when to break the rules. Ambiguity and complexity as a result are minimized in the extreme, for example, a novice nurse, to give one example, uh, she may be taught or he may be taught how to read blood pressure or measurely, measure bodily outputs or compute fluid retention and given rules then on what to do when measurements reach certain values. You're judged by how well you apply the rules, period. But as you accumulate experience, you become an advanced beginner. You start to learn something about it. You can even examine some facts free of context, or you can use more sophisticated rules. But you also begin to perceive similarities between new situations and things you've encountered in the past. You begin to match patterns and you begin to think through. Uh, a nurse may learn, for example, from experience how to distinguish sounds that indicate pulmonary edema uh, from those suggesting pneumonia. Experience is more and more important. In other words, she will say to, or he will say to herself or himself, I've heard this before, that sounds like, and it's on the basis of tacit knowledge or innate knowledge based on personal experience. So, then you reach stage three, you become competent. You become good at what you do. You develop a hierarchical procedure for decision making. You understand the situations you encounter as sets of facts, interrelated with other sets of facts. A competent nurse, to continue that one, will no longer automatically go from patient to patient in a prescribed order, but evaluate the urgency of their various needs and make a plan to react accordingly. 
Now this is the important part. Expert systems do pretty well in a lot of domains up to this level of ability through novice and advanced beginner to competence. But stages four and five, becoming truly proficient and then truly expert in a domain. Uh, when we reach those, we no longer isolate discrete elements in a situation. We respond what we call intuitively to the whole situation. We don't apply rules any longer because we have included them long ago, but now we transcend the rules. A boxer, for example, getting ready to decide when to attack, does not apply rules about body angle or distance from the jaw and so forth, but when he sees the right picture in front of him, he hits. He uses a behavior that was successful in an earlier situation, triggered by the similarity of the new situation to the old. He responds intuitively to the patterns without breaking them down into their component features. So intuition comes to occur effortlessly due to discrimination resulting from prior experience. A real expert carries this capability in its highest form. An expert knows what to do based on a mature and practiced understanding. Experts are completely engrossed in what they are doing. They're in a condition that the famous writer at the University of Chicago called flow. You lose self-consciousness and are one with the situation. You are in it. You are immersed fully conscious in it. So experts don't solve problems and do not make decisions. They do what works and they know what works. Experience produces an ability to discriminate among a huge number of situations. So the expert's responses become unconscious, automatic, natural, and fluid. A nurse may sometimes sense the patient lies in imminent danger of relapse and urge a doctor to act right away. They'll pick it up. They'll sense it, they say. Here's a quote, real quote, from an expert psychiatric nurse clinician. When I say to a doctor, this patient is psychotic, I don't always know how to legitimize the statement, but I am never wrong because I know psychosis inside and out. I feel it, I smell it, I know it, and I trust it. That's the way it comes to work. You're no longer doing check the boxes and answering questions and following rules. You just see it, and you know that you're right. So, if experts access rules, they're meta-rules. They're the principles that transcend the stated or known principles. And because of that, we may not be able to articulate them, just like meta-rules in privacy, except as abstractions. And the abstractions don't sound real to people who don't function on that level. They think you're making it up. They also think you're acting arbitrarily in different situations. But you're not. They think you're acting arbitrarily because they can't see the internal basis for what you have learned and know on the basis of which you are then making that decision. So it looks arbitrary and scares them to death, and that's why they respond in what you would call literalist or fundamentalist way. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because that violates the rules at the level at which they operate. The goal of people in all of this conference proceedings is to arrive at a level of expertise in knowing what to do at an extreme level of self-transformation and know that they know it. But if you don't know it and don't know that you know it, know that you don't know it. 
In other words, here's the second rule. If you don't know when to break the rules, don't break the rules. In other words, use the rules because you're novice or advanced beginner or even competent. But if you know why you are breaking the rule, that that rule no longer applies at the level of abstraction and insight you have now reached, then you break the rule with confidence, clarity, and a freedom of action. But if you don't, don't do it. There you are. This is how you engage with this. Like a hacker, entering into engagement or conversation with a meritocracy that has rules for how you learn and how you show respect and how you do obeisance to those who are superior to you. You don't walk out of a talk and someone like, well, I'll use Robert Buchanan because we talked to him for an hour afterward and this guy really knows what he's talking about. You don't say, oh, he's BS. He's just an academic or he's just a doctor or he's part of the medical establishment. If you're doing that, it's just defensive and it's defensive on behalf of a primitive or immature ego. No, you pay attention to what the best people are saying and then if you find they're wrong, you go beyond that. But you don't just reject wholesale, whole areas of understanding. Um, I think there's someone who only goes to alternative medicine and says the medical establishment is a complete scam, uh, refuses treatment for serious diseases uh, to her detriment. Whichever one you make everything, it's never everything. Some alternative approaches are good, but a lot are snake oil. And some medicine is self-interested and profit-driven and uh, exploitative. But a lot is really pretty sound. And it's not a simplistic thing to simply reject one or the other. So, life unfortunately or fortunately is fired at us point blank every morning when we wake up in the barrel of a gun. It confronts us with its urgency, with its immediacy. And real life doesn't lend itself to simplistic categories of good and evil. It's all gray. I don't know if you saw a movie some years ago called The Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. I think it was, was it Robert Duvall? I forget who was playing the bad guy, bad sheriff. And after a lot of stuff where you clear who's the good guy, Clint Eastwood, who's the bad guy, the sheriff, uh, Clint Eastwood has the bad guy on his back and he's got a rifle in his hand and it's pointed at the guy's face. And the sheriff says, don't do that. Don't. He says, I finally got my life together. I got a girl. We're living on the ranch. I'm going to retire from the sheriff. I don't deserve this. And Clint Eastwood said, deserves has nothing to do with it. And then he pulled the trigger. Well, that's life. Life tells us a lot. Deserves has nothing to do with it. And then it pulls the trigger. Knowing that, knowing what life can do and be, means we have an obligation to respond. This is the ethical part, this is the reverence part, this is the hacking part, by becoming as knowledgeable, as aware, as conscious as possible with humility, and engaging with it in a way that enables us to take the reins of our own freedom and power in our hands, and self-transcend and self-transform as we can. Uh, what does that look like, to be an expert in ethics? Let me give you an image. Oh, that's Clint Eastwood. We already did him. That's Huckleberry Finn. Way back in the old days, when we had what we called a canon in literature, people read Mark Twain. And uh, Mark Twain wrote a book called Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn was written after Tom Sawyer. 
It was, we'd call it a sequel today. Took a spin-off character and made a whole book about it because he was so popular. Huck Finn was a wild spirit, a free spirit, and it was based on Mark Twain's own experiences of himself as a boy. Well, why is that relevant? Because uh, Huck Finn took off down the Mississippi River on a raft with the runaway slave named Jim. And they became close in a way that uh, was proscribed or forbidden by society in the middle 19th century in Missouri, southern border state, uh, in those times. They became close. And that got to the point where they knew where Jim was, and they knew that Huck knew where he was, and they knew Huck could turn him in. And the, these are the two things that they told Huck about why he should turn him in. Number one, it's illegal for you not to tell us where he is. He's property, and he's stolen, or stolen himself, and you're harboring stolen property, and you're going to go to jail if you don't tell us where he is. In addition, this was a fire in a brimstone kind of Protestant area. There was hellfire preached from the, from the pulpit all the time in sermons all over Missouri. And so the moral framework of the religious world in which they all lived without variation said not only will you go to jail, but you're going to go to hell. And that was a hell based on fire and damnation and scary stuff for a young teen like Huck Finn. He didn't have LSD to tell him what was real and not real. He couldn't make the distinctions we're gifted with today. So he was scared. So he's got two threats. You're going to go to jail, and you're going to be damned eternally. And Huck took that corncob pipe, which he's smoking, and sat under a tree all night, cogitating upon those promises and possibilities. And when dawn came, he had his decision. He said, well, damn it, then I'll go to hell. Damn it, then I'll go to hell. That's what an expert in ethics looks like. All the rules of the day, both legal and moral and religious, told him to do this. And he transcended them in a leap of intuitive knowledge that the right thing to do was not turn in what was not property but a human being and accept the consequences, as people like Martin Luther King were willing to do, when you break a law in order to expose it Hello? to the conscience to the conscience of the neighborhood and the society in which you live. So that's If you think I'm not trapped, uh, uh, Okay, the heck with the slides. They're just pictures, and I can tell you what they look like. Oh, it's back. Well, for the moment. <laughs> it's called a tease. Um, okay, so Huck Society fused legal and religious truths, but they're not always fused. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you follow the rules you've been taught, you will not necessarily make the decision Huck did, which is... I'm not going to turn him in. Uh, nor will you mess around with implants, enhancements, and alterations at all. You won't touch this stuff. Because the rules say don't touch this stuff. If you go to Europe, oh, you need a license to do biological exploration. Uh, if you go to Canada, you can get, uh, what is it, one, two, three, uh, the genetic read, with suggestions about what they mean. But in the U.S., you can't. You'll get a printout, but you can't get explanations of what some of them are likely to point to. Different cultures answer these questions politically, um, not on the basis of science.
So we're really talking about situation ethics, which is the recognition that there are times you have to transcend the rules, even the way they are sanctified by law or conventional religion, if you know you are going into a domain of meta-rules. The ultimate meta-rule is, is very simple. Do the right thing. Do what works. And that's a level of abstraction that a lot of people, or some people, can't reach. But every human being can reach it, if you so choose. You can reach the level of expertise in ethics. It's called having a life that works. I once went to the Zen Center in San Francisco, and the Zen monk leading the conversation or lecture came out, and he bowed to the audience, as I bow to you. And then he said, do you know why we bow here at the Zen Center? Well, everybody in San Francisco is trying to be more spiritual than thou, right? More righteous than thou. So you've got religious answers. Uh, you bow because it shows respect to the Godhead. You bow, blah, 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 blah. And every answer he got, he didn't reject or put down. He just said, that's a good answer, but it's not what I'm looking for. It's a good answer. Finally, no one had the answer he was looking for. He said, we bow because things seem to pretty much work better when you bow. That's been my template ever since for what is ethical. That, the doing of which, makes things pretty much work better, not only for you, but for everybody else. It's a win-win. It's got to be a win-win. I did a talk at DEF CON years ago. I, should, I spoke last summer for the 20th straight year at DEF CON. I was very happy and astonished that that had happened. And I did a talk second or third year on social engineering. And the trick was to elevate your game. Social engineering is knowing through empathy and understanding of a domain how to extract knowledge from someone to your advantage. But the higher level is to extract knowledge from others in a give and take so that it becomes win-win. That's society functioning at its ideal level. So, when we operate in that rule, in that domain, you may appear to break the rules, but you aren't. If you don't know when to break the rules, as I say, don't break the rules. So those are two rules, write them down. Don't be stupid. If you don't know when to break the rules, don't break the rules. That'll get you through the rest of your life. That'll be $12 each, please. Uh, it's uh, better than a fortune cookie. Okay, here's, here's something else I, I noticed along the way. Where are we in time? I have no idea. I thought there was a clock on the. Oh, we're over already. Oh, well, let me let me finish with the let me finish with this and skip the second half of the talk, uh, <laughs> which was really the stuff where I tell you the truth about what I've learned in the intelligence community. But uh, call me. Call me. Um, mutuality, feedback, and accountability, I learned, are the hallmarks of any organizational structure that works. They're also true for all of us individually. I'm, I'll just say that. I've got things online that explain what I mean by that, but you can take a look at it. Mutuality means you can't do it alone. Feedback means frequent feedback loops into and out of the systems of which you are a part at every level of complexity. And accountability means honoring and acknowledging a higher vision or reality uh, to which you continually uh, Return uh, in, in order to uh, true yourself up. Uh, that's a whole talk, and that's about, I, was gonna, I really was going to tell you a lot of things I know that are being developed at DARPA, but that won't happen. Uh, passing through that, this is the bottom line. What will you make, and what will you make of yourself? And those are things you can do. Education, push the envelope, reskill, grassroots businesses, 
be mindful and vigilant. And that's me. And I'm going to say I've got one copy of each book for those who want to look at them. Mind Games was a collection of short stories. I returned to writing fiction when a colleague at the NSA said, you can't talk about this stuff, you know, unless you start writing fiction. So I've published 35 short stories since then, 19 of which are collected in Mind Games. Uh, last fall, I brought out a novel, big novel. Uh, it's what people used to read, big novel. Uh, 500 odd pages, and it's terrific, the best I could do. It's called Foam, and it's about the conscious and unconscious movement of information and energy between all sorts of sentient creatures. Um, a few years ago, I was part of a team that developed, I, I do want to show anyone interested in UFOs in a serious way. I will be done in a second. UFOs in government and historical inquiry is currently in 65 university libraries. It has nearly 1,000 footnotes pointing only to original documents, to government documents and primary sources. We have set the gold standard in doing original serious historical research into how the government responded from the 1940s to the 1980s to UFO phenomena. And it is bulletproof because all that data is grounded in and repeats the words of the government groups and people themselves. Um, I am so proud of this book. Um, as I say, I'll show you. It's 600 pages long, and it is recognized as the gold standard. That's foam. That's the novel. That's an alien who is downsized into an earthly human body in order to engage in improv with human beings. And in order to learn how humans operate, he studies the internet and cable TV. So, of course, he thinks you get in bed with a woman in 10 minutes because he watches uh, things like uh, uh, girls and sex in the city and Grey's Anatomy and so on, so he thinks that's the standard of behavior. Uh, it's a great book with a lot of narrative threads interwoven, of which he is one, and Heidi, the girl he hooks up with at the bus station who runs fetish sites and also is a masseuse, uh, is another. Uh, a lot of great characters, and I loved it. And I guess... Uh, I guess I'm done. I'm out of slides anyway. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Q&A. I will be available for a little bit before we have to get our car out of the Hilton so they don't charge us another day. And uh, thank you very, very much. Oh, uh, stick around. We'll, we, we probably have time for a couple questions. Oh, we do? So I want to okay. make sure that we have a, a time for oh, a couple questions. Oh, good. That's why I was pushing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, got a first question here. Let's do that. Hello. Hi. Um, so I've seen a TED talk with uh, Dan Pelota, uh, and he mentioned uh, 40 out of like 40, no, seven out of the 40 people who went up to the Apollo missions um, only only stayed married. So the other 33 got divorced. And he he said we can go to the moon, but we can't have it. We can either go to the moon or have a happy marriage. Um, either go to so, the moon or have a marriage. Or have a happy marriage. So, um, well, you could, you could say that about a lot of things. No, yeah, but his point... You, you, you can have affairs, or you can have a happy marriage. <laughs> or you can polyandrous and have a happy marriage. You can, you can be it? monogamish and have a happy marriage. Couldn't Dan Savage? Who sure, knows? Sure, sure, but uh, my right? question is, why is it so easy for society to want to advance in technology, but uh, it's, it's so hard for us to advance in our ethics? You got another question? <laughs> Why is it so hard? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Part of it is because people know that knowledge about ethics really is contextual. I had a friend who was on the ground with special forces say to me, and he says it with a, a, a weight that tells me that, you know, when you know someone knows what they're talking about, he says, you know, the rules don't apply out there. 
Okay, so there are different rules. I've, I've just given lip service to the different rules different cultures and political systems have. But it's the different rules of, for example, Obama running for office and saying we're going to come down hard on intrusion and uh, surveillance and getting into office and saying we're going to be more Bush than Bush in implementing intrusion surveillance. Why? Because the first day you're handed the briefing and you look at the 10 biggest threats to the United States as the intelligence community presents them to you, and you read them, and you're now responsible not for yourself, for your family, but for the uh, country, you say one thing, which is how can we prevent these things from happening? And then when you're told what technologies you must use and implement to do that, you will say one thing, which is do it. All of us in that chair at that time would do that. It's so easy out here to say, oh, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't do that. But when you're on the ground in the contextual situation that demands an immediate response to serious threats, then that's what you'll do. So there are levels of threats to our well-being all the way up from little things to big things. And how you frame that, how you distort that, how you are afraid of the wrong things all the time, uh, how it's exploited by politicians, always confuses the nature of the threat. And what is ethics eventually? It's doing what works in light of a hostile or threatening environment, which we call our home planet Earth, which hasn't been kind to most of the species that ever evolved here. So ethics is trying to figure out in a gray zone, in a gray domain, which is always gray, what is the best thing to do now in light of the imperfect knowledge I have in the present of what might be the unintended consequences for the future. So that's not easy. And I can tell you, I can do that and have a happy marriage. Although it's, it's the second one, always, right? The first one is a starter marriage. It's where you practice. And you learn a lot. <laughs> but that's the voice of experience. Yes. And thanks for your talk. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, nice. I've got an open-ended question. Um, just about the ethics of the nudge, this idea of um, trying to direct behavior in a direction that's you know, hopefully in someone's best interest. But right. just, it seems like there are a whole host of issues that that brings up in terms of what is best for a given individual. So just, again, open-ended, what are your thoughts about It's a good that? question. Yeah. I did have a whole paragraph on that. It was, it was what was next. Uh, seriously, because when you're talking to somebody else, when they have chosen to engage with you, as they did in the ministry, and many still do because of that life and work and my age, uh, when you engage with someone uh, in, in that do domain, you do have a rule. The rule is you don't give answers to anybody and you don't tell them what to do. You try to empower them to have the ability to make the decision for themselves, which is the right one. And you, you may not always know what that is. And, and you may also be in a condition of ambiguity, like, like uh, doctors who willingly help patients die. When they do surveys that are anonymous, uh, many, many doctors, a huge percentage, will leave a huge bottle of pills with the patient who wants to die and tell them, don't take all of them, you'll die if you do and then leave the room. Now that's not assisted suicide. It's warning them not to do something, knowing full well that they will do it. So there are all kinds of kludges we invent to get around those rules in order to assist a person in making the right decision for themselves. But it's contingent on trusting that they will ultimately make the right decision. Uh, and even when I've had people who are uh, about as aware as a box of rocks to whom I speak, and say maybe this, maybe that, and it's clear they can't make a decision, you might move toward, if you do this, you know, this is likely to happen. Don't, don't do that. I don't think that's, that's wise. You might say that. 
only when you perceive uh, profound resistance. Uh, but mostly what you're trying to do is work with the person to understand from inside them, because when you listen to somebody's story, you always wind up with compassion. Because you would probably have done a lot of the same things in their life if you had been them. And so you, on the basis of that empathy, and knowing that you don't know the secret, hidden, mysterious core of the being, you do not trust yourself to be God, but to be a, a helpful companion. And that is something they never teach you in three years of seminary, because the only people who teach in seminaries are people who failed in parish ministry and returned to get PhDs so they could teach in seminary. You learn that fire to point blank range over the first couple of years, or you blow out of the water. That's my observation. Uh, is, was there somebody I, I actually, else? We're, uh, we're, we're taking into the break at this point, so we're going to have a nine-minute break before our next talk. But one more time, a big thank you to Richard. You're very welcome. Now, a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks and ISSW for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for either one of these conventions, please feel free to do so because Body Hacking Con and InfoSec Southwest both are worth the trip, worth the money for the experience for the networking. So our loyal listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to facebook.com forward slash podcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like to have added, please email us about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, as well as information security today. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and or projects you're doing exploring and developing till next week seek the spark scientific progression is steamrolling there's no preventing it going ahead now we're intrinsically linked with technology biology as we know it is dead